is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the New Orleans Public Schools District initiated revocation proceedings against the nonprofit running the James M. Singleton Charter School at an emergency board meeting. The New Orleans City Council's Utility Committee unanimously approved a resolution this week that states City Council members won't take campaign contributions from a number of sources related to the Council's regulatory authority over Entergy New Orleans. A group of employees from the New Orleans Department of Public Works staged a strike this week for better wages and safer working conditions. And Louisiana residents who are enrolled in Medicaid may begin receiving notice from the Louisiana Department of Health informing them that their coverage will end when the federal public health emergency declaration for COVID-19 is lifted. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is joining. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Health reporter Philip Kiefer is here. Hey, Philip. Hey, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hi, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, big story in education this week. At an emergency meeting just a couple days ago, New Orleans Public Schools District officials said they're moving to close the F-rated James Singleton Charter School this summer. The announcement came as schools have already let out for summer and on the heels of several district-issued warnings to the Dryads YMCA, which runs the small Central City School. Last month, the group CFO was arrested for falsifying employee background checks, which allowed someone with a criminal history to work at the school, and there have been other operational concerns and continuing academic concerns as well. So this week's announcement, was it a big surprise? I think this week's announcement was definitely a surprise in that they're trying to do this before school starts next year so the kids will be going to a different school so it's definitely a surprise on timing as far as what's been happening at the charter school there have just been you know mounting concerns there and the district has been more involved in the school over the last year uh, both monitoring financial issues asking them to start a separate um, group to run the school that's separate from the Y and then ongoing academic concerns over special education and other problems. The most recent one included some questions about money that was owed from the YMCA or the charter organization to the school and their response. I I might be getting that wrong, but their response was, how do we, how can we owe ourselves money? Can you explain what that all was? Yeah. So, so what I think this traces back to is, you know, that Dryad's YMCA holds a charter contract to operate Singleton. Because they hold that contract, they get certain state and federal per pupil funding, and that money is supposed to be directed to, you know, it's supposed to be spent in certain ways for the education of those students um, at the school. And I believe what's happening here is they're insinuating that some of this money has not made its way to the school, and so that, you know, technically that the Y owes this money to be spent on or at the school. But, you know, the Y's argument is, you know, we're the nonprofit that runs the school, how, how can we possibly owe ourselves money? Okay. I have a really important question in this, and you may not know how to answer this, but with the revocation of the charter, what happens to allegations of that sort? Like wh- what happens to that money? If it is If it was meant to go to the charter and the operation of the school, is there any recourse for uh, receiving those funds and redistributing them 
for the educational purposes of the kids somehow. We have not seen this historically happen, so we don't know exactly how that would work. Normally when a charter shuts down, it's the whole organization. And so that money is reverted either to the school that takes over or the, um, or back to the district. But in this case, I think it's going to be a, a really messy separation if this goes through. Um, yeah, well, we're starting to, aren't we seeing a, a similar sort of situation that'll give us some idea how, how that might work with uh, the closeout of uh, Mary D. Coghill School? Yes, so maybe we'll see some precedents out there, but uh, set there, but what's different about that is they didn't have any other funds to, you know, they weren't spending money on other programs or other operations, um, right. but, I, but I do think the district in that case is arguing that you know, they've, they've been spending money for the last year while they haven't been running a school, so. The situation there, just, just for everyone listening, is that uh, Coghill School was a, another school that was, um, you know, had, had a number of problems, um, was, was eventually taken over the, by the district and still had some remaining public funds in its bank accounts that the district is now trying to get back from, from Coghill, if, if, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Marta? Right. And then all of that has happened over the course of the past year when they've been involved in lawsuits and now the district has sued Coghill. So, you know, I think that money is going to lawsuits and perhaps that's what the district is trying to avoid in this case. But mm. right. Because this facility is also an operational YMCA. So it has other things that are happening in addition to the educational aspect of the school. Right. Right. So I think it's just unclear, you know, was money spent in the administrative office that, you know, runs both the school and the Y and is that, you know, is that the type of problem we're looking at here or we don't exactly know what they, where they're looking for this money. Okay. How many families are impacted and what do they do? There's now? about 400 students who go to the school. Um, the uh, district said they're going to communicate with families this week and that they will soon find out what their new school is going to be. Um, and if, parents don't like that reassignment, they can um, go to this through the summer enrollment process and ask for a new placement and they would be given a priority placement. Although we do obviously have to point out that much of the many of the city's seats, if not the vast majority have already been filled for next school year or already been set or decided for school. So certainly if you get an assignment you don't like, you should you should go do that right away as soon as summer enrollment is available. Is it even possible in this case to do a district takeover or, or send it to another operator with, with the building? I believe it's a wise building. Yeah, that's why I was asking. So, so in other cases we've seen the district has found another operator for the building or in the case of Coghill um, has taken it over directly for a period of time, but that would not be so easy here. Right, exactly. So that yep, the, they run the school at the Y itself and then they have a, I think they rent a church nearby and they have a couple, you know, portable buildings. So that divorce would be very complicated or, or that, that post-divorce cohabitation arrangement would be very complicated. Right. If, I mean, the district would, in essence, be renting from the Y, which, you know. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Michael, a couple stories for you today. The City Council's Utility Committee unanimously approved a resolution on Tuesday that states that City Council members won't take con campaign contributions from a number of sources related to the regulatory authority over Entergy New Orleans. The resolution also encourages council candidates who aren't currently council members to abide by similar rules. What does the resolution say and why now? 
Yeah, so, so the resolution, um, like you had mentioned, it's really a non-binding resolution. Basically, the council members voluntarily saying that um, they're not going to accept campaign contributions from a number of sources related to the city council's role as the regulator of Entergy New Orleans. So we've talked about this before, but New Orleans is in kind of a, a unique situation. Um, most electric utilities are regulated on the state level. Um, so there's like the Louisiana Public Service Commission, uh, which serves the majority of the state of Louisiana. And while there are other cities that regulate their utilities on a local level, um, most of the time that is in regards to a municipally owned, a publicly owned utility. So New Orleans is in this weird spot of having local regulation of an investor-owned private utility um, in Entergy New Orleans. So again, in that role, um, the, the city council has passed resolutions like this in the past. And, and it, the, the goal is basically twofold. The, the first is to avoid undue influence from Entergy, the company they regulate. And the second is to discourage political influence in the council's um, choice of their utility consultants. Um, so another thing that we've covered in the past is that the way that New Orleans, the, the city council regulates energy um, has historically been almost entirely reliant on outside consultants. And um, th th they're some of the most lucrative contracts awarded by the city council. And again, as we've reported about, um, those contract awards have sometimes been um, at least allegedly um, influenced by political collect, uh, connections and donations. So. This is something that started in like 2006. Um, city councils would pass these resolutions. Um, and the reason why it's been passed, I think, four times since then is that it's a voluntary restriction. So every time there's a new set of council members, um, they like to kind of repass it. So, you know, it, the promise made in 2006 by that set of council members, okay, now as this new set of council members, we're, you know, doubling down on that promise again. But to your question of why now, uh, we've got city council elections coming up in October and November this year. So those around the corner, I guess it seemed like time to, to again, the last of these resolutions was passed in 2016, so time for a new one. Can I ask you, Michael, how, how what, what is the, 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 the breadth of this? Does this include major contractors for Entergy or, or, or how far does it go? So we had seen a, uh, the original draft of this actually included any contractor of Entergy that actually did not make it into the final version. Okay, so, but what it does cover, it covers Entergy's um, political action committee called NPAC, and it also includes any employee of Entergy New Orleans or Entergy's parent company, Entergy. And on top of that, it also restricts donations from the council's utility advisors, as well as anyone responding to a request for proposals for the, the utility consulting position. Do we know why contractors were taken out of it? Uh, no, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't talked about. I, I mean, I, I, you know, we had talked about how difficult that might be, um, for them to actually implement that list of contractors changes every single quarter. Um, Entergy is a big company with a lot of needs. And so, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, again, I didn't get the inside scoop. My guess is that they were, uh, they were probably concerned about the difficulty of enforcing that. I'm going to try to back into this question and not sound so entirely cynical, um, if, if these resolutions had real teeth, wouldn't that preclude the existence altogether of a political action committee and donation mechanism for a, com a company like Entergy? Well, NPAC, 
NPAC is a major donor statewide, not just New Orleans. So okay. they, they give to state legislative candidates. They, you know, or you, you, well, you know, they, they, they give all over the place. It's one, it's one of the major, it's one of the, the real major political contributors in the state. And I believe, and I believe to, you know, congressional candidates and things like that as well. Okay. But I think legally speaking, I, I, don't think there is really a mechanism to give this teeth because city council only has control over municipal code and municipal co- code does not have control over uh, uh, you know state uh, state elections law. Yeah, I, so I think that the difference, you know, the, the, the reason why you pass a resolution like this that doesn't have you know a real you know enforceable teeth to it um, is that when you look at other utility regulators, you look at the the Louisiana Public Service Commission, for example. It is just an established procedure for utilities and, and their lobbyists and, and related companies to dominate um, the elections for those positions. I mean, that's not even, you know, when it comes to the Public Service Commission, um, again, that's just kind of the norm that most of the, the, the campaign contributions are going to come from companies that are directly impacted by those regulatory decisions. So at least at the city council level, when you're having this debate, they're establishing that it's improper for you know the, the regulated companies to have such a large role uh, to have political influence in 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 the uh, uh, um, campaign process. So it's at least establishing that you know the city council is saying that's not how this should go. That we shouldn't have the regulated companies basically choosing their own regulators the way that it kind of happens at other public service commissions around the country. So again, no one's going to get kicked out of an election for this. No one's going to lose their seat for this. But at least, you know, as you're debating, you know, you're starting at a baseline of it is improper to receive, uh, you know, these types of donations because you're going to have to regulate this company if you're elected. Okay. Well, and, and now that they've made the pledge, I mean, it works just like a campaign promise. People are going to be paying attention. People are going to be looking at their ethics reports and, and seeing if they're living up to the pledge. They're, they're kind of using the election and the media as the regulator in this case. Exactly. And it gets really interesting because this one, unlike former, you know, these other resolutions in the past, it also encourages candidates who aren't currently on the city council to abide by the same rules. So, again, that's just an interesting point, because before it's been, okay, this group of council members is voting to voluntarily do this. And now they're kind of extending this, like like Charles said, this kind of campaign promise to a bunch of people who never really had a say in this might might not have a problem with accepting money from Entergy, but now they're kind of implicated um, in the promise. So um, we'll see if that actually comes to a head um, in the election. Okay. In other city news, a group of 10 employees from New Orleans Department of Public Works refused to report for work Monday and told you that they're initiating a strike for better wages and safer working conditions, including air conditioning in their work vehicles. This comes while the city is set to vote today, mandating that contractors with the city pay a minimum of $15 an hour. These workers, however, aren't subject to those same principles or those same rules. Can you tell us about the Civil Service Commission that oversees salary and benefits for these workers and why this doesn't impact them? Yeah, so, so like you said, the city council is voting today, um, highly expected that they'll pass an increase um, in the city's living wage ordinance to guarantee $15 an hour for city contractors. But like you said, the city council does not have that authority, um, does not have the authority to make a minimum wage for direct city employees. Um, and the reason for that is that employment decisions when it comes to city employees um, are, are um, uh, governed by the, city, the, the uh, Civil Service Commission. 
um, which is a semi-independent body that is meant to shield personnel decisions from political decision-making. And it's, it's a five-member board. Four members are nominated by the deans of local universities um, and confirmed by the city council. And the fifth is nominated through a election of city employees and also confirmed through the city council. That process is, is, is kind of meant to shield um, you know, that body from being so politically motivated. Although as we've covered in the past, uh, mayors have been criticized before for kind of getting their hands dirty, trying to kind of shuffle around the composition of the, the commission. You know, they, the whole point of the Civil Service Commission is to insulate city employees from politics, you know, meaning that, you know, a mayor, uh, you know, a mayor, mayoral administration can't just terminate entire departments for not being loyal enough. So, you know, there are, there are benefits of this sort of insulation for city employees. But, you know, on the other side, when, when we have an election going on and, and the city council is doing things that have a political component to them that could benefit city employees, city employees don't get the benefit of that directly. It has to go through this bureaucratic process instead. Okay, but the, and the bureaucratic process that is likely to happen today, although we don't want to predict the future, but Michael, you, you think that they will probably approve and, and formally approve this resolution today that, that will force contractors to have a minimum $15 an hour? You, you expect that today? Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it went through committee and it is sponsored by all seven council members. Okay. Um, so the likelihood of it not passing is, is pretty low. They're also going to vote on a, a motion today. It's a non-binding motion, but it, it's in support of raising the, the minimum wage for direct city employees as well. So the motion is uh, to make a request to the city's chief administrative officer to do an analysis of what the impact would be to raise the minimum wage for city and workers to $15 an hour. The motion is basically nudging the, the administration to start pushing for this. Um, you know, if, if the administration got behind a $15 minimum wage, that would be a, a pretty big push. Uh, you know, again, they don't direct the Civil Service Commission, but um, it would be a, a pretty a, impactful thing. A big signal. Yeah, and the Civil Service Commission, often the way they work is, is, is the administration will bring them a proposal which they will then consider. Okay. Um, so that that would typically be be a first step for a major change to the pay plan like this. Do, okay, but they're going to they're pushing today to uh, initiate a process that will study the effects of this raise. How long do you expect that to take? And if and I'm asking you to project if that in fact does result in the Civil Service Commission okaying a, a raise also for the city employees to have the same wage that contract employees do, would it be retroactive? Well, well so yeah, I, so the motion wants the, the analysis done in 45 days. Um, so, you know, again, that's kind of in the administration's hands, um, I guess. In terms of whether the wage would be retroactive, um, I guess would be not, although those are details. You know, we're talking about something pretty theoretical here. Um, I will say that in studying this, you know, one thing that will be interesting to look at is whether there'll be any animosity about, you know, workers who have worked up to a $15, $16 wage oh. over, you know, their career at City Hall, um, and whether there'll be any hard feelings about, you know, everyone being brought up to that level suddenly, whether people at $15 might want a little bit of a bump themselves. These are complicated things. We're talking about, uh, you know, a lot of employees, um, hundreds here that would be affected. So yeah, I mean, it, it probably makes sense to start at, at a study. 
So, so just a couple, a bit of context. The last time they did this in a major way was uh, in 2014 and 2015 as part of a larger change to civil service rules under Mayor Mitch Landrew called the uh, uh, Great Place to Work Initiative. Uh, a small part of that, uh, of those rule changes, was a change to the pay plan, bringing up at the time uh, the, the city minimum wage to 10.10 an hour. Now, as Michael sort of alluded to, um, that had a ripple effect beyond the lowest paid employees. At the time, it was only about 200 or so employees who were making under 10.10. I believe the Times-Picayune reported this week that the Cantrell administration is saying about 900 employees make under 15 now. But uh, if I remember correctly from the last time this happened back then, that this does have an, a ripple effect due to the structure of the, of the pay plan and the civil service rules. So if you raise up the lowest paid employees, you then have to raise up the employees who get paid more than them and, and the employees who get more than them and, and so on and so forth. Michael, go, going back to the to the contractor situation, again, the last the last time that they did this, uh, there was a bit of a, a, a sticking point after, after a minimum for contractors. The first living wage ordinance was passed in that the, the administration's interpretation at the time was that contracts that pre-existed the passage of the first living wage ordinance were were not affected until they went into a, a, a you know a post five-year renewal do we know what the situation is with this new one so it's not a new it's, it's an amendment to the existing ordinance so so almost everything that the every clause of the existing living wage ordinance will also exist for this one although they are adding a clause about multi-year agreements um and I've actually been a little confused by it, so I'll just read it. Any city contract or city financial assistance agreement with a term of longer than one year, inclusive of any renewal terms, shall provide for appropriate annual adjustments to ensure that the living wage payable during any given year of the agreement corresponds to then current living wage for that year. But that still sounds like it's applying to future contracts. Right. So it sounds... It sounds like what they're it sounds like they're trying to avoid the situation they got into last time where uh, as much as two years after the original living wage ordinance was passed we had city contractors who were still making under the then minimum because they were in a they were in a it was they were not five-year contracts but they were a contract you know a contract is passed for one year and it's renewable under under the same terms for up to five years and, and again, the, the administration's uh, uh, interpretation of that was that those terms included the, uh, the wages that were, were in effect at the time of the contract being uh, adopted. So it sounds like they're trying to avoid that, but it might be something that we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, again, it sounds to me like it still wouldn't fix the, the issue with existing contracts, right? Like that seems to be like a clause for future contract approvals. So I don't know. Yeah, you might see a little bit of the same issue. Although, you know, again, if we're talking about the living wage ordinance, though, we should also bring up, you know, obviously a, a high profile story surrounding this was the um, uh, the city waste union, the garbage hopper strike in, in 2020. And those guys at the time were getting paid less than the city's living wage, which, you know, was, I guess, 1119 at the time. So we're, we already have issues with enforceability. So, you know, that's another part of this to, to pay attention to is that um, I, I'm not sure about the current situation at Metro Disposal at this point, but at least for a good chunk of last year, we already knew that there were contractors out of compliance with the living wage ordinance at the $11.19 uh, rate. 
So, mm. you know, the rate's getting higher, but uh, right. uh, if enforcement's not there, then, then it doesn't mean much. And who's in, char- who's in charge of enforcement on this? Is it the, the, oh. uh, the, yeah. is it the CAO's office? Yeah, this is interesting. It is the CAO's office. And they, they did, after the, the uh, hopper strike began last year, if y'all remember, we covered that the city council passed uh, a new enforcement measures for the living wage ordinance. And one of them is that the CAO has to uh, uh, present a report every year, uh, including a list of all contracts under which the, the, the living wage should apply. Um, and that kicks in this year. So the CAO starting during budget hearings in the fall is supposed to come and present on every contractor uh, uh, that applies under the living wage ordinance, as well as the lowest uh, paid employee at that company, or at least working on that contract. So this year we should see an extra level of enforcement kind of kick in, but but we, you know, we're waiting on that. Okay. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You've been busy. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of The Lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Okay, Philip, tens of thousands of Louisiana Medicaid recipients will begin receiving letters alerting them they may need to reapply for benefits when the nation's public health emergency ends. Medicaid participation increased in Louisiana and nationwide throughout the pandemic. This was in part to an emergency expansion of eligibility. How did Medicaid eligibility change over the last year and a half? So what has happened, um, there are sort of two interconnected federal policies that have really changed the landscape in Louisiana and nationwide. So the, the first step is to help states respond to a dramatic surge in um, Medicaid enrollment, the federal government increased the proportion of Medicaid costs that it covers. The costs are usually split between the state and the federal government. uh, And across the country, the federal government picked up a bigger tab, essentially. And in exchange for that, they required all states to basically stop conducting eligibility checks. Um, it was called a maintenance of effort rule. Um, and, and so in essence, they asked all states to keep everyone who was on Medicaid enrolled on Medicaid through the end of the public health emergency. Um, and that's a big deal in Louisiana because not only do we require people to and this is the a federally dictated policy. We require people to renew their eligibility every year. That's supposed to happen automatically, but sometimes it involves um, it involves asking recipients for supporting documentation on a case by case basis. But we also, since I believe 2018, have been conducting quarterly wage checks. Um, which involve using a Louisiana Workforce Commission database to automatically verify whether or not a household is still eligible based on 
income limits for Medicaid. Um, and normally that results in lots of people being disenrolled on a quarterly basis. And with that paused, we've seen, you know, not only a surge in enrollment, but just a maintenance in the roles, which has led to a, a spike in people on Medicaid. Right. So what was the increase in Louisiana? We saw um, total Medicaid enrollment go up by about 300,000 people. Um, and a little more than half of that came from people enrolling in the state's Medicaid expansion population, which is the expansion to state Medicaid eligibility passed under the Affordable Care Act and that was implemented in Louisiana by John Bell Edwards when he first um, took office. And that's the part of Medicaid that um, covers low-income adults, essentially. There are lots of other parts of it that cover people who are about to go through childbirth, their children, there's people um, on disability, but by far the, the sort of chunk that... Um, has contributed most to the um, the increase during the pandemic is this pool of low-income adults. Okay. And now they're, they're signaling that this time is changing soon. The notion is that you need to be ready to go back to the old playbook, which is eligibility checks, re-enrollment. When do we expect all of those things to happen? Yeah, that's actually been sort of a a changing target over the last six months because the Trump administration renewed the public health emergency on a quarterly basis and didn't necessarily give states a lot of notice as to whether or not it would continue to be renewed each subsequent quarter. When the Biden administration took office in January, they sent a letter to um, every governor in the country saying, we intend to keep the public health emergency in place until the end of 2021, at least. So we know that, or at least we have assurances from the federal government that the public health emergency will be in place for about another six months. It could be extended after that, totally unknown. Um, but in December, so again, under the Trump administration, the, the federal agency that administers Medicaid released a guidance to the states, essentially saying you need to start preparing to resume eligibility checks. And the state Medicaid said in a statement to me that they're anticipating um, more guidance coming down from the current administration soon. So we may see changes there. But in the meantime, what they've begun doing is in January, they began um, sending out letters to people who had overdue renewals, so people who would have needed to go through the standard annual renewal process early in the pandemic. So they sent those letters in January. They just began sending letters to people who didn't respond, essentially telling them um, that because they have not renewed their eligibility, they are still covered through the end of the public health emergency but they will be disenrolled when it ends. Um, so they say that in a presentation to the Louisiana legislature in December of last year, um, Medicaid said that they anticipate that um, at least 160,000 people will be disenrolled when the public health emergency ends. It's probably a higher number now because a little bit of time has passed since then. 
in that they expect an overwhelming workload once that does happen, where they're just processing a year and a half plus of of these eligibility changes. I was gonna I was gonna ask. I mean, you know, so so we have a, a large chunk of people who who who's seem it looks like they may be disenrolled. Um, we have we have new enrollees beyond that who may not be disenrolled. Uh, and uh, among the disenrolled population, we're probably going to have a, a significant chunk of them trying to reapply. Does, does, does the state have the capacity to deal with all this? <laughs> That's kind of the open question that I um, I'm hoping to get more information on soon. I mean, we know that early in the pandemic and throughout the pandemic, their enrollment process, as with a lot of welfare programs during the pandemic were overwhelmed by applicants. Um, And again, to the legislature, they basically said, we're going to be, yeah, I mean, they literally said they're going to be overwhelmed by the task of um, sorting out who is and isn't uh, eligible. You know, that may be alleviated slightly by the fact that the public health emergency has been extended for uh, until the end of this year. At the time in December when they issued this report, they were operating under this Trump administration sort of uncertainty of renewal. And so they were actually estimating that the public health emergency would end in January of this year, so six months ago. And that was really what they were describing as being crushing. Still, they're, they're talking about um, having to process hundreds of thousands of people's applications. And, and meanwhile, the legislature gave him a lower budget than the governor's recommendation for the year, right? Exactly. Um, and that comes along with not being able to draw down as much. So be, because this is a matching program between the state and the feds, the state isn't able to draw down as much federal funding with this increased federal match. The other step that the state had available to it to ease the the cost of this was uh, under the American Rescue Plan, there was federal funding available to maintain people who had just given birth on Medicaid. So I think around, I don't remember the specific number, but it's somewhere on the order of 60% of childbirths in the U.S. are covered by Medicaid. And every time somebody goes on Medicaid because they're pregnant or for whatever reason, and then disenrolls, that creates administrative costs, right? Because somebody has to process all those things. And there was an opportunity to basically keep people on Medicaid longer, which presumably would have both made sure that people continued to have access to medical care, but also sort of slowed the processing time of of this different pool of Medicaid recipients. Um, the legislature declined to take that funding. And so that's sort of another um, pain point that we could end up seeing. This is clearly not going to be only Louisiana that's going to be facing these giant administrative costs associated with disenrolling or the the resulting uh, ripple effect of all this disenrollment from this program and, and the administrative costs associated with it. You'd think that there'd be some assist with these costs on a statewide level. What I will say is there's sort of that in place in terms of Medicaid. I mean, obviously this has been sort of a theme and stuff that I've been watching for the last month or two is just that 
the wind down procedures for a lot of these federal emergency programs um, have been, there hasn't been a lot of advanced planning necessarily, or there are a lot of end of life decisions being made very quickly. There, there is planning, but then things come to an end very quickly. Um, and that seems to be leaving a lot of recipients um, sort of dealing with a rapid transition. I will say that um, there is a little bit of a federal off-ramp in funding. Mm. So um, states are required to begin resuming the eligibility processes when the public health emergency ends. But the expanded federal funding for state Medicaid roles goes through the end of the quarter in which the public health emergency ends. Um, and this is something that was passed in mid-2020. Um, and that means that if the public health emergency ends on the first of a quarter, the states have a little bit of extra funding through the end of that to sort of cushion the, um, the wind down. Hopefully they'll use it. I mean, it's really... As far as I can tell at this point, it's very much up to the states. At least that was the most recent guidance. We'll see what guidance the Biden administration gives because it could be very different. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. All right, huge week, you all. Thank you so much for all your work. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen. Michael Isaac Stein, Philip Kiefer, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>